You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why is it the corrupt politicians that often get voted into office? Think about the movie stars and the celebrities that play these lovable characters on screen, and then you find out that they have horrible lives off screen. Uh, Why is it the jerks that get the girl or the bad girls that get the guy? Think about the social media influencers. I mean, why did that 12-year-old kid become famous? Why is it the sketchy people who have bad business practices? Why do those people climb the ladder of success and ultimately become a CEO of a company? Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. The world thinks in terms of strength and power, of ability, self-assurance, and aggressiveness. That is the world's idea of conquest and possession. The more you assert yourself and express yourself, the more you organize and manifest your powers and ability, the more likely you are to succeed and get on. Why do good things happen to bad people? It seems like these are the people, the the ones who are aggressive and self-promoting and asserting themselves into the world, those are the ones who climb the ladder of success. So if those are the rules, if we want to win, do we have to play by those same kind of rules? See, in the world, we see these different values, values like being harsh. That would say, blessed are the mean, for they make it to the top. Values like grasping and seizing, that says, blessed are those who take, for they get what they want. Values like being vengeful and and, and getting someone back, that says, blessed are those who pay back their enemies, for they get respect. Those are the ones who actually get respect. Or, or to be uncontrolled, that says, blessed are those who give into their anger, for no one will stand in their way. That's the world that we live in. And, and in that kind of world, we ask ourselves, I mean, what options do we have? Do we have to become mean people? Do we have to become harsh? I mean, this is a tension that I've felt, to be honest, even throughout the building renovation. I tend to be, by personality, someone who who does come across at times rough around the edges or blunt in my speech. And so in my discipleship to Jesus, I have really prayed and spent a lot of time asking God to grow gentleness in my heart and make me a more kind and compassionate kind of person. But to be honest, with this building renovation that we are doing, there's all sorts of interactions I have in the construction world. And there have been times where I've almost felt that pull. Do I have to be mean to this person to get them to listen to me? Do I have to, you know, kind of sound angry on the phone to get what I want? I've talked to other people when they're doing construction projects. They're like, that's just kind of, you know, the world that we live in. You just kind of have to flex those muscles and become aggressive if you want to get your way. And the reality is that's not just the world that we live in today in America. Uh, Think of Jesus and the audience that he would have had when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to a large group of Jews, and these are an oppressed people by the Roman Empire. And ancient Rome, in this area specifically, is not all that different than America. If you wanted to get ahead, if you wanted to win, you had to play by those rules. Be, be mean, be aggressive in order to get 
to the top. That's really how Rome became the kind of empire that it was. They dominated anyone who stood in their way. And the Jews oftentimes found themselves as an oppressed people underneath the Roman machine. And so what options did they have? How did they uh, decide how to live in this tension of the world that they live in and the rules by which everyone was playing a game? There are four different ways that, that these different groups of Jews responded. The first group is the tax collectors. The tax collectors would say, if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat them, join them. The tax collectors, Jews who became tax collectors, went to work for the Romans. And they did that because they realized, I mean, what hope do we have? Might as, you know, we're not going to beat the Romans. We're not going to overthrow them. So might as well make a good living while we live in the land. And so they worked within the system that they were given. The next group is called the Pharisees. The Pharisees would live by the saying, anything you can do, I can do better. And the Pharisees really wanted to rise above the system, specifically by being holier than thou. They wanted to be righteous. They wanted to be pure. They followed the law, you know, to a T, the letter of the law. And so their idea was, you know, to almost like create this hyper-religious, legalistic group. And as they did that, they felt like that was their way of almost sticking it to the system, rise above the system. The next group is the Sadducees. The Sadducees would say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Maybe you've used that phrase before. Uh, They would say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. They didn't go to work for the Romans like the tax collectors did. You know, the tax collectors did that at risk of being perceived as traitors by their family and their friends. The Sadducees believed they were actually manipulating the Romans, and the Romans knew that they were actually manipulating the Sadducees. So they made these powerful political alliance, and, and, and the Sadducees really almost played that political game that the Romans played. And and, and so they manipulated the system. And then you have the last group, which is the zealots. And the zealots would say, fight fire with fire. Instead of, you know, working within the system, rising above the system, or manipulating the system, they wanted to say, down with the system. They wanted to, to, to burn down the Roman Empire at any cost. And a lot of zealots even became violent and murderous at times, killing Roman people. None of those options, the reality is, none of those options actually solve our problem. None of those options actually change and transform in a redemptive way the world that we live in. Is there another way? And I believe there is another way. It's not the way of the tax collectors, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the Zealots. The fifth way, I would say the true way, is the way of Jesus. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 5, says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus' way is the meek way. Now that word meek is not necessarily a word that we use in our everyday life. It's the Greek word praus, and that means mild, gentle, humble, or meek. It's this idea of restraint. This idea of keeping your composure, of letting someone else have their way instead of you being aggressive and forceful and harsh. R. Kent Hughes picks up on the classical use of this word, which I think is so beautiful. Pay attention to these word pictures. In classical Greek, the word was used to describe tame animals, soothing medicine, a mild word, or a gentle 
breeze. Think about those different things. A tame animal as opposed to you know, a wild animal or like my dogs can be sometimes kind of crazy, right? But maybe you, you have a, a pet that actually listens to you and is well-behaved or, or, or you see just an animal that's really, really gentle. That kind of animal versus you know, a, a rabid dog or a crazy kind of animal. Uh, think about a soothing medicine, not caffeine, not something that gives you a buzz and makes you go crazy, right? Think of soothing medicine, maybe even an ointment like aloe that, 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 that uh, heals a burn that you might get. Think of a mild word. I mean, as opposed to someone who's shouting at you or yelling at you or says, you know, that person who says, well, I want to speak to the manager. And you're like, I am the manager. They're like, well, I don't care. I'm going to speak to you, right? Someone like that versus someone who's encouraging someone who's gentle in their speech, or, or maybe a storm, this is my favorite, a raging storm or a hurricane versus a gentle breeze. That gives us an idea of what this word meek actually means. It means that, that, that not necessarily that we are weak. In fact, I would clarify that meekness does not equal weakness. Like that's a little bit of a misconception that someone who's meek is someone who's just, just maybe naturally not very strong or not very powerful. We have to remember at times like these that Jesus describes himself as meek. Uh, we'll look at that from Matthew 11 a little bit later. But Jesus describes himself as meek, and he is the one who is king of kings, lord of lords, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth have been given to him. And he says that he himself is meek. So that, that informs us that meekness does not equal weakness. What it means is it's strength under control. It's the ability that we have to use our power not for our own selfish advantage or benefit, but to use and leverage what we've been given to lift other people up to serve other people and encourage other people. And at the heart of this virtue is actually trusting God. We're never going to be able to be meek unless we trust God because trusting God, what that does for us is it means we don't have to stick up for ourselves because God will fight for us. We don't have to be the one to force our way and our will in the world because what we're most concerned with is God's kingdom come and his will being done in the world. It allows us to serve like Christ and love like Christ and be selfless like Christ. And and we're never going to be able to embody this gentle spirit, this mild composure, this, this meek attitude unless we trust God and we trust that God is still on the throne. Well, the critic in each of us might say, well, where has meekness gotten anyone? I mean, what do you get for being a mild person? What do you get for being quiet? What do you get for not forcing your way in the world? That might be what the critic in each of us might say, to which Jesus would reply, I'll tell you what you get for being meek. The entire earth. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a pretty big promise that Jesus makes to us. So let's unpack that. What does Jesus mean when he says that we will inherit the earth. The word earth is also the word that can be translated land. It's the Greek word gay, and it means land, ground, or earth. 
And it really is contrasted by another word that is sometimes used for the world, which is cosmos. And cosmos often refers to sometimes, you know, the sinful world that we live in. But even more, more naturally, just like the entire earth or even the universe, like the, the cosmos, right? But this word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5, 5 is a word that specifically has this idea of dirt, uh, of kind of like a garden even, right? If you're, if you're a garden, we, we actually just pulled out our, uh, our, our plants from our raised garden bed that we have this summer. What you have left on your hand when you're pulling weeds or you're working in the dirt, that's this word that Jesus used. It, it, it's kind of like having land that you can grow things in and flourish and prosper. Of course, that reminds us of the early chapters of Genesis where, where God makes Adam out of the earth, out of the dirt, out of the dust of the ground. And then he sets Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to take care of the land. So they have the land. They're reigning and ruling over the land. And then really specifically, this, this word land shows up time and time again in the Old Testament, sometimes even with a capital L, right? Capital L for land. And the story of the Israelites is so intertwined with the land. Almost like you can't tell the story of the nation of Israel without talking about this thing called the promised land. And really, the first time we see that is Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where God makes a promise to Abraham. This is the promise that he's going to make Abraham a great nation. And through his family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then later on, God says this, to your offspring, I will give this land. That's the promise from God that he's going to, you know, all tied in with the covenant God made with Abraham to make him a great nation and to bless the whole earth is the Israelites would have the promise Land. So all throughout the story, it's really, where are the Israelites in relation to the land? So when they're in slavery in Egypt, they're away from the land. That's part of the heartbreak. They're away from this covenant promise of God for them to settle in the land. And then Moses leads them to the edge of the promised land. It would be Joshua who would do the conquest of the promised land. And then you have you know, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. They all rule the kingdom of Israel, and they even expand Israel's prominence in taking over other areas of land. And then it goes downhill from there. You have the divided kingdom, and then eventually, you know, the the northern kingdom gets shipped off into exile in Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah goes into Babylon, and their hearts are broken because they are once again removed, plucked away from the land. And even when the people are allowed, they're permitted to return to the land, it's never quite the same again. They're going to be under foreign rule, foreign occupation from the Romans, and even to this day, right? So this promise that we will inherit the land is deeply tied to this promised land that you read about all throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, what's interesting about this beatitude is when Jesus promises we shall inherit the land or the meek shall inherit the land, he's almost quoting word for word Psalm chapter 37, which is a psalm that, that David wrote in his old age. So King David who got to be there living in the golden age of Israel, right? He's the king of Israel. He lives in the land. People are prospering in the land. He wrote Psalm 37 in his old age. And already you can see the cracks beginning to form. And wicked people, that's our question we're, we're asking. Why do good things happen to evil people, to bad people? Wicked people are prospering 
in the land, and the people of God are suffering because of it. So that's really the tension within Psalm 37, which is directly where Jesus gets this third beatitude. This is what it says in Psalm 37, verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And so there's this promise. Even King David in the Old Testament is saying the wicked are going to fade away, right? They're they're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They're like grass that springs up for a little while, and then it gets scorched and burned and, and, and withers away. But it's the meek. It's the gentle. It's the mild. It's the selfless. It's the humble that actually endure forever. David is saying, don't worry about all the evil people who are prospering around us. Don't worry about that politician. Don't worry about that CEO. Don't worry about that movie star, right? Don't worry. The land will be ours once again. And for us, this, this idea of the promised land points forward, not necessarily that all of us are going to live in Israel, right, or anything like that. What it points forward to us is the kingdom, It points to the kingdom of heaven and the return of Jesus Christ to make all things new. Bible scholar D.A. Carson puts it like this. Entrance into the promised land ultimately became a pointer toward entrance into the new heaven and the new earth, the consumption of the messianic kingdom. And this really reminds me of Matthew chapter 13, a parable that Jesus told about a landowner who plants this wheat in his field, in his land, and you have an enemy who comes by and sows seeds of, of weeds in there. And so it's the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And, and so the servants come by and they say, well, shouldn't we, shouldn't we rip it all out right now? And, and the master says, just wait. Just wait until harvest, and then we'll rip everything out together, and we'll separate the wheat, the good stuff, from the weeds, the bad stuff. And, and the bad stuff will be thrown away and burned, and we'll enjoy the fruits of our labor. And that's really the situation, the tension that we find ourselves in, is God makes good stuff. He makes rain and sun come down on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. But that doesn't mean that the harvest time is never coming. That doesn't mean that Jesus won't judge the the wicked and the righteous alike. So here's our main point for today. You can have it your way or let Jesus have his way. You can have it your way, and that might sound familiar. That's actually the Burger King slogan, or at least it was, right? Have it your way. You can have it your way. You can live your life where you are in control, where you're, you're, you're forcing your way, you're climbing the ladder, you're, you're being dominant, you're, you're doing all of those kind of things. You're playing by the rules of the world. You can have it your way, or you can let Jesus have his way in your life. And the way of Jesus is a way where, as Jesus says in Matthew 16, where you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him. That's the way of Christ. The way of Christ is actually self-denial, not self-assertiveness, not aggressiveness, not grasping, not harshness. The way of Jesus is denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Once again, in Psalm 37, it touches on this in verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. And you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. 
Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. I love that word picture of someone who keeps God's way versus someone who doesn't keep God's way. He says that the person who doesn't keep God's way, they're spreading him, he's spreading himself. I mean, how many people are, are self-promoting, spreading yourself, spreading your own interests, like you know, a green laurel wreath? It's that idea of, of, of like a, a seed, you know, sowing your own different seeds of grass and, and plants in this world. Eventually, that person is going to see the end of that. They're going to fade away. You're going to look for that person, and there'll be no more. But the person who keeps the Lord's way, who lets Jesus have his way in your life, there's a future for that person. And I would say that to you if you've never responded to the good news of the gospel. Let Jesus have his way in your life. Surrender your life today to the Lord Jesus. And there can be a future for you. And you can inherit the earth. You can inherit the land. I I love the promise, that word inherit. It means that you didn't do anything to earn it. Not that blessed are the meek, for they will earn the, the, the kingdom of heaven, for they will earn the earth. It's no, that this is God's grace at work in our lives. We're saved not by our own works, not by climbing our own ladder to heaven. We're saved by the work that Jesus Christ has done, the Son of God dying for the sins of the world on the cross and being raised to life three days later as a victory over sin and death. And today can be the day for you that you become a co-heir with Christ, where you are adopted into the family of God by surrendering your life Asking God today, you can pray, asking God today to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And the way that Jesus called us to respond and commit our faith to him is a step called baptism. I mean, I can't think of a better, a better act of surrender than baptism. Baptism is someone else dunking you under the water, showing that your old life is dead and gone and raising you back up as you are raised up into a new life in Christ. You can find out more about baptism. You can sign up to get baptized at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. But today can be the day that you receive an inheritance and you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But for those of you who have already made that decision, here's a few practices for us to live this meekness out in our lives. The first practice is trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trusting God is not just something that you do at one moment when you initially put your faith in Jesus. Trusting in the Lord is a daily thing. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I would just ask you that question. You're probably not putting your trust in horses and chariots, but what are the things you're putting your trust in right now other than God? What are the horses and chariots in your life? Are you trusting in your own talent, your own, your own intelligence? Are you trusting in the dollar bill? Are you trusting in finances? Are you trusting in security? Are you trusting in a, a relationship? Or are you putting your trust day by day in the Lord your God? Again, Martin Lord Jones says this, we are to leave everything, ourselves, our rights, our cause, our whole future, in the hands of God, especially so if we feel we are suffering unjustly. I mean, that sticks out so intensely to me in our cultural moment. Our world right now, maybe more than ever before in our lifetimes, needs Christians who are meek. The world right now doesn't need Christians who are picking fights on social media. 
The world right now doesn't need Christians who are argumentative and trying to, to, to force people to, to, to believe what we believe, especially when the things we're arguing about aren't even necessarily the things of Christ. You know, think about all of the different tension and division and arguments and, you know, people saying, hey, don't make me do that. That's not my, you know, I have a right, you know, and, and, and citing all of these different things. The reality is a Christian, a follower of Christ, was never meant to be a person who stood up for their own rights. A Christian, to be like Christ, is actually to trust in the Lord and to lay down our own rights for the benefit of others, especially for the benefit of the most vulnerable. And our world right now needs Christians who are meek. And the way that we really fully can can embody that gentle spirit is actually to trust in the Lord every single day. Our second practice is to keep an eternal perspective. That's so key to this idea of inheriting the land. This is a future promise, by the way. It's a future promise. The first beatitude about being poor in spirit, it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But here for the third beatitude, it's blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit, they will one day inherit. So it's this future promise. And really, we're only going to be able to be meek when we have this eternal perspective in mind. See, citizens of heaven aren't living for the here and now. We're living for eternity. And that means that we're going to be okay with giving up some of our hopes and dreams in this present age. We're going to be okay giving up some of our comforts. We're going to be okay even suffering for the sake of the gospel now because we know life is so much more than just here and now. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 29. He says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, right? If you give up even your own land right now, he says, For my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We're living for the future inheritance of the promised land. And that promised land is heaven for us. Heaven is our promised land. We will receive the earth back. And it's not this heaven up there in the clouds. It's actually tied to the earth, to the land that we live in. Look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Did you catch that? Did you catch what, 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 you know, this, this unity when heaven joins earth once again? It's called a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem. It's the promised land, right? That's the capital city of the promised land. That heaven, when heaven and earth unite once again, we won't be up there in the clouds. We'll be here on a redeemed, on a totally renewed earth, and we will dwell with God, and he will dwell with his people forever and ever. And it's this idea that we will finally have that we're home. We are in the promised land. Maybe you've been away on a trip for for a long time, maybe weeks, maybe months at a time, and you get home, and there's a little glimpse of that, that sigh of relief, like, there's no place like home. Well, heaven, this new Jerusalem, is our permanent residence. 
It's our inheritance. It's our home. And it's going to be so, so incredibly good to live with God and dwell with God forever. And I would say for us, right here, right now, that's a future promise that we need to keep in our perspective right here, right now, because that's going to change the way that we live. And then the third practice is to have the meek mindset of Christ. In Philippians 2, we're told to have the mindset of Christ, that we've been given the mind of Christ. Well, what kind of mind is that? Philippians 2, it's a mind of humility. It's a mind of, of meekness. And, and gentleness, which is really uh, you know, one of the definitions of what it means to be meek, this word prowse, is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. That, that gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So how do we have this mindset? Ask the Holy Spirit to grow it in you. Pray and ask God to make you more gentle, to make you more humble, to make you less aggressive or harsh or mean in your spirit. And watch as the Holy Spirit grows that in you. And then we look to the example of Jesus Christ, who, like I said, is the perfect embodiment of what it means to be meek. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, it's that same word, prowse, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The invitation of Jesus to be our master, uh, for us to be the ones who follow him, and he's our Lord, he's our leader in life, is a great invitation. It's part of the good news of the gospel, that you can actually have a good boss in your life, is that Jesus is a, is a gentle and humble. He's a lowly, he's a meek master. And what that means is he's not a taskmaster. He's not a slave driver. He's not cruel. He himself is not harsh. And that means that when we put ourselves under his teaching and follow his way of life, it's going to be good for our souls. It's going to be good for our souls. And the longer that we follow Jesus, the more we should become like him the more that that meek mindset is actually embodied in us. He's not meek in the sense that he lets us do whatever we want. He's he's meek in his treatment of us. And he longs for us to become more like him. When Jesus was going to enter into Jerusalem on Passion Week, the final week of his life on earth, this is what he said to his disciples in Matthew 21, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, he's quoting Zechariah 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. And how is the king, how is the Christ coming to the people? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And that word humble is the same Greek word, praus, right? It's only, that specific form is only used four times in the whole New Testament. And three of them are in Matthew. We looked at them in Matthew 5, in Matthew 11, and here in Matthew 21. In what Jesus is saying is, is his posture as the king is to come into Jerusalem meek and humble and gentle. He doesn't ride on a bulldozer. He doesn't ride on a tank. He doesn't ride on a war horse. He rides on a donkey, a beast of burden, because he's displaying and he's demonstrating this meek mindset. All throughout the the, the crucifixion of Christ, we see the same meek mindset. He lets Judas leave, get up and leave from the Last Supper. He says, do what you must, and Judas goes to betray him. He lets, when the soldiers show up at the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, here I am. He doesn't run away. He doesn't flee. And he lets them arrest him. He lets the high priest, the chief priest, beat him and mock him and falsely accuse him without saying a word. And then he's with, uh, with Pontius Pilate. He's handed over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. I, I can't think of a more staggering contrast between meek, humble, gentle Jesus and 
just Roman power and authority and arrogance with Pontius Pilate. It even comes to a head where Pilate is questioning Jesus, and Jesus is just letting him question him. He's just standing there silently, and Pilate says, don't you know I have the power? I have the power to set you free or the power to send you to your death sentence. In that moment, Jesus says, you would have no power if it wasn't given to you from above. Because what Pontius Pilate didn't realize and understand is that he had power for a moment because his work, he worked his way to the top in the empire. He played politics. He used his aggressiveness. He, he played by the rules of the world, and he was winning in this present age. He was standing there in his pride and his arrogance. But what Jesus had is he had the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, and Jesus is the one for all of eternity who will be the name above every name. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To him, all authority and power on heaven and on earth is given. I don't know about you, but I know what choice I would make between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. I want to follow the one, and I want to live in the way of the one who actually promises us an inheritance. There is a future for that person, for the meek, the gentle, and the mild. Let's close by looking at the opening lines of Psalm 37. If you have an opportunity this week, I would encourage you to read through all of Psalm 37. It's a fairly long psalm. It's 40 verses, but just to read and reflect and meditate on this psalm from which this beatitude grows. Listen to these words from Psalm 37, starting in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. You remember our initial question? Why do good things happen to bad people? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.